the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. This is the word to stand on for life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The word to stand on for life is a radio ministry of Calvary Chapel in San Antonio. A live call-in show here to help you answer your questions about the Bible and how to apply the word to your daily life. For more information on Calvary Chapel, visit our website, calvarysa.com. Get your Bible questions ready and call in now to 210-340-9585. It's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. Welcome to the show. It's the Wednesday edition of the Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. And this is, as you know by now, a program dedicated to taking your phone calls and answering your Bible questions or life questions or anything and everything else that's on your heart. All you have to do is call us. You can dial 210-340-9585. That's 340-9585. If you're outside the local San Antonio area, you can call toll-free at 877-630-KSLR. Numerically, at 630-5757. You can email questions to us by emailing questions at calvarysa.com, or you can send them in via our free Calvary Chapel of San Antonio mobile app. If you're driving in your car, I want to remind you that the safest way to call is use the hands-free feature of your phone and the free KSLR mobile app. One banner call now. You'll be connected directly to our studio producer. One more time for our number. It's 340-9585. Because it's Wednesday, it's my cue to remind you about Paula being live in studio uh, with me tomorrow on the date day edition of the program. So if you have any questions or calls or ladies, especially if you need any encouragement from Paula, she will be here. Uh, I also would like to sort of promote, not because we get anything from it, but uh, our Bible study tonight in Isaiah chapter 60. It's one of those Bible studies that, that um, pastors dream about doing. It's just nothing but good news. It's nothing uh, except a gracious, loving, all-powerful God. And as we listen to all of the promises that God is making to his people, Israel, for the millennial kingdom, we need to remember that we will be ruling and reigning with Jesus uh, during that time. It's it's about things greater and grander than you can possibly imagine. So I'm really looking forward tonight. I would ask all of you to pray for my voice Nothing is worse than getting excited and not being able to get the words out. So uh, I would appreciate your prayers on my behalf. Let's get to some questions that have come in while we await your phone calls. My first question is from our mobile app from Grant. He says, I found your show on the AM630 website and wanted to ask a question. I heard you talking about your friend's church getting younger and younger. I'm 25. And I feel like I see an awakening in the church the past six months, and a lot of it has to do with Zionism. I wanted to get your thoughts on that. Have a good day. Um, Grant, I'm not exactly sure the connection you're making between Zionism and the awakening that you have. Zionism is nothing more than uh, Israeli nationalism. When we talk about Zionism in the New Testament, Jesus is talking about the kingdom of God that will be set up during the millennium. Um, the the great uh, after the, following the great tribulation, uh, and and Zionism is simply something that uh, all of us have in us. You know, one of the things that we have to remember is that the kingdom of God isn't something that's going to happen to us. The kingdom of God is something that happens in us. 
because it does, we should always be motivated by this this sense of of being a blessing to Israel. Um, you know, the sooner Jesus is with his people, Israel, in the millennium, uh, the sooner that we're going to be raptured to be with Jesus. So I'm not sure that it, exactly the connection you're talking about with Zionism and an awakening in the church, but I am really encouraged, Grant, by uh, what I think you're indicating. At 25, you feel like there's an awakening in younger people uh, in the church, and, and I think that's great. The one thing that I always caution people, young people or old, is is if you see something happening in the church that you're attending, uh, you want to be a part of it. You don't want to miss it. But just make sure that it's biblically grounded. Make sure that it's not somebody bringing new prophecies or somebody bringing new teachings. It's just the Word, the Word, the Word. And it is the Word of God, the Spirit of God working through the Word of God that is going to be responsible for any awakening. I am really hopeful that God is truly moving on the hearts of people your age and younger, Grant. Um, I, I mentioned on our program uh, earlier this week that we've sort of had a mini revival going on in our junior high group. I mean, we're talking uh, 12 years old, 13 years old. Um, um, we see uh, a real hunger for the Word. But we've also seen that hunger for the Word accompanied by a willingness, in fact, an eagerness to serve. Last Saturday, um, you know, every Saturday morning, we have a Saturday morning cleaning crew that comes in and prepares the, the church. It's a great ministry. The people that have been serving together for a long, long time are great friends. They do a lot of things together. But this past Saturday was our junior high ministry's turn to do the, uh, the, the cleaning. And not only did they do a great job, but they were here early. They were on task. They wanted to do it. And, you know, that's just, that's an indication of the power of the Spirit of God. It's not just going to church. It's not just having an experience. But it's actually using the gifts that God has given you and the strength that God has given you to minister to others as well. And uh, I'm really excited to see what the Lord is going to do with these young men and women who, who seem so legitimately on fire to hear the Word of God, to do the Word of God, and to be a part of the church of God. I've noticed, Grant, uh, and typically we have, uh, um, on Sundays especially, we'll have, um, you know, kids' church uh, at all ages. Uh, I've noticed more and more of those junior hires popping into the, one, of the one of the services on our adult study, and they'll be here on Wednesday night listening to the adult study, and they're often here on Friday night listening to the adult study. They just can't get enough of the Word. So that's what I think an awakening involves, not necessarily Zionism. Uh, we can support Israel, we should pray for the peace of Israel, and we should be a blessing to Israel. Um, but regeneration and a baptism in the Spirit, all of that begins with the Word of God hitting a human heart, convincing us that we're sinners who need to be submitted and committed to the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant, God bless you. Thank you for contacting us. Here is a question from Paul. He says, Pastor, and why is there so much division over the issue of universalism? Isn't it okay to hope that God is bigger than we think and will find a way to get everyone to heaven? Um, Paul, the, the division over the issue of universalism is because universalism is heresy. It is in contradistinction to what the Word of God declares. Now, this is really, really important. I often hear, Paul, people who are bent toward universalism. But, but Pastor Ron, wouldn't it be great if everybody was in heaven? Maybe God's bigger than you think he is. If God is not holy and if God is not just, he's not big at all. He's not even God. Why did Jesus have to die if everybody was going to end up in heaven anyway? If God can overlook sin, if God doesn't judge sin, if he doesn't have to by the very nature of who he is, well, then Jesus didn't have to die at all. Remember, in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus 
pleaded with his father, if there's any way this cup can pass for me. And the father's response was, there is none. And that's why Jesus, according to Isaiah 53, took the wrath of God upon himself to spare us from being objects of that wrath. Remember, Paul, we are all sinners. We're all enemies of God. And our flesh is an enemy of God. And yet because Jesus took the punishment, the wrath of God in our place, that's what the atonement is all about. Because he did that, we're spared that wrath. And if God can just sort of wink at people and say, well, you know, uh, I really don't want you to suffer in hell forever, so I'm going to punish you for a while and then I'm going to bring you to heaven, is to deny his justice, which is an essential part of his very nature. He is holy and just. So that would not make God bigger, Paul. That would make him smaller. It would render him impotent. And that's why there has to be division over the issue of universalism. For the life of me, uh, I see so many people, and they're getting younger and younger, who are so um, enslaved by their emotions that all they can think about is, that would make me feel better. It doesn't make me feel good to think about people being tormented in hell. But one of the things that we have to understand is that if we go to hell, it's because we made that choice. And God has made it difficult for people to go to hell. That's how much he loves us. We literally have to go into eternal torment, stepping over the dead and resurrected body of Jesus Christ to do so. So it's really important. We've got to read the Bible for what it says. Don't read it with a hopeful heart. Don't read it with a sense that, well, maybe it doesn't mean what it says. It really does. And we live in a time, Paul. We live in a time when we are watching people continually sacrifice the truth of the Word of God for something that makes them feel better. And all too often they end up without any word from God at all. And it causes them a great deal of difficulty. So, Paul, I hope that answers your question, settles the issue once and for all. No judgment, there is no God. Lila asks, should Christian parents spank their children? Now, Lila, you're going to get me in trouble here because I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. And uh, we have to decide, are we going to be swayed by our culture or are we going to be swayed by what the Word of God tells us? Um, Proverbs chapter 13 says that the one, the parent who spares the rod, hates his son. Um, That's spanking. Um, It says... um, If you discipline your children with the rod, that's spanking. He'll not die. That's not abuse. Um, It says it's a rod of correction. And it says it imparts wisdom. That's, That's four mentions just in Proverbs alone. And I believe, Lila, that um, Proverbs is the best child training, child raising book written in the history of the world. It was written, of course, by the finger of God. So yeah, children uh, who are disobedient, willfully so, uh, ought to be spanked when they are young. Now I'm going to make some some statements here that, that I want everybody to listen to. I've actually been accused of encouraging child abuse. Nothing could be farther from the truth. A parent, Lila, should never spank their child in anger. Um, You you may have heard me say on this program, I've gotten this question many times, a Christian parent should never raise their voice to their child. I mean, except you've got a kid running in the street and you see a car coming, there's no reason ever to raise your voice. A child should have an explanation and an understanding of why he or she is getting spanked. And it should always be accompanied by love. Uh, We spank here at our academy. Um, You know, Lila, it's happened, we've been doing this now, this is our 20th year of the academy. Uh, We hardly ever have to do that anymore. The kids have been trained. 
But when they are willfully disobedient, then they need to be spanked. When our designated spankers, we have a, a, a woman who's worked here from the beginning, uh, and our pastor who, who issues spanking, one to boys, the other to the girls. Uh, most of the time we try to get the parents down here. Uh, they, they agree by contract that they will come down and administer the spanking, but there's times when it's not possible, so they give us the permission to do it. Uh, and and they're looked at right in the eye, and they're spoken to very gently. Do I look angry? Do I sound angry? Do you know that you are loved here? Do you know that I love you, they will say. And the little one will be nodding their head through tears often. But the discipline has to be consistent. It shouldn't be punitive in the sense that we're trying to hurt him. And remember I said never, ever in anger. And your child should know that there are consequences that they will face as a result of willful rebellion, willful disobedience. So it's certainly not child abuse. It's simply something that needs to be done. Now let me take one step further, Lila. I don't believe kids that are as big as their parents ought to be spanked. I think we're smart enough, we're creative enough, we can pray and get direction from the Lord with enough clarity that that we can come up with something better than spanking to discipline our kids. I just can't imagine walking into my principal's office and seeing him with a 15-year-old boy spread out over his knees or, or bent over to get a spanking. We're, we're simply not going to do that. You know, when you can talk to people, reason with people, then that's what you need to do. But with little ones, it's often impossible to reason with them. They just don't understand. So our job is to train them. And whenever you see the word discipline, Lila, in the Bible, um, that's what it is. It's training. It's not um, uh, punitive at all. It's not uh, us responding in anger to the things they've done. It's simply training them. And if you don't train your children, then nobody will want to be around them. So yes, spanking is okay. And when I hear people say, it's never okay, that's child abuse, uh, then it's clear to me that they don't know God, they don't know the character of God. Let me also say one more thing, and then I'll move on, Lila. We are mandatory reporters here of any type of child, any type of child abuse, whether it's physical uh, child abuse, sexual child abuse. We're mandatory reporters. If we get any hint that a child is being physically abused in their home, then we're going to report those parents, that family to Child Protective Services. In some cases, we've reported them to the police as well. Um, Because no child should ever be pushed around. No child should ever be beaten. Uh, It's just not something that any child should ever experience. Obviously, parents get angry. They lose control. Remember that self-control is the fruit of the Spirit, Lila. And those of us who are in Christ have a responsibility to represent Jesus to our children. Lila, my final question to you is this. Does God ever spank you a little bit? Now, I understand it's not physical, but if you've been disobedient a little bit, does he discipline you? Of course he does. He does it, Hebrews says, because he loves you. And because he loves you, he disciplines you. Well, if we love our children, then we have to discipline them as well. So, I hope that answers your question, Lila. 34095 85 for your live calls and questions. We'd love them. It would save some of my voice as well. Here is a question from Melissa. Uh, Do you believe in faith healers? Is what they do real? Um, Melissa, there are times when God heals, and God heals uh, in ways that have nothing to do with faith healers. So the short answer to your question is there is no gift of being a faith healer. I think we too often misread uh, the list of gifts, especially in in Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, because when it talks about gifts of healing, it's not, I'm, I'm giving the gift to somebody so that they can heal others. The gifts of healing are those gifts given by God directly to the afflicted person. So there's no biblical support for a faith healer. Now, we know that 
Jesus, of course, healed people. The apostles uh, from time to time healed people. They weren't faith healers. They were apostles. And the power to do miracles was validation of their calling by God as apostle. The faith healers that we see on so-called Christian television these days, uh, that is a dog and pony show. It's absolute nonsense. And there is no such thing. Now, let me appeal to you logically. I can, I can appeal to you through the Word of God, but let me appeal to you logically. If God was going to give somebody the gift to heal, do you think he would do it in a huge arena or on a television program where money's being solicited? Or do you think he might give it to somebody who'd walk through a children's hospital and heal the kids that are there? Do you think that he might give it to somebody who would spend a whole bunch of time in the intensive care units of hospitals and heal the people who are there? And of course, that healing would always be accompanied by a gospel presentation. You see, that's the way God works. And for people to to anoint themselves as faith healers is... Um, Nothing but trickery. They convince people that they can do something that people will pay for, and we need to be really, really careful. No, I do not believe in faith healers. Again, having said that, I do believe that God still heals sometimes. Now, if everybody's honest, we know that there are many, many, many more times that he doesn't heal than times that he does. I'll give you just a quick illustration James, the brother of John, one of the sons of thunder, was the first apostle who was martyred for his faith. His brother John lived to be 95-ish, the only of the apostles who were uh, not martyred for their faith. He died of natural causes. Think about James being imprisoned followed right away by Peter being imprisoned. And Peter was rescued from the prison. And James wasn't. I mean, to a lot of people that doesn't seem fair. Why rescue one and not the other? Well, we can't discern the will of God. In Isaiah it says, His ways are above our ways. We can't even begin to imagine how deep His ways are. And so God doesn't explain those things to us. But what faith healers do is not real. That is not to say that God in his sovereignty and in his mercy won't heal a few people who are there. I can tell you, everybody who's at a faith healing crusade is immature in their faith. Everyone who is there, including the guy on the stage who's a con man, they're immature in their faith. And sometimes God meets people who need to be healed to believe. One of the worst experiences of my life as a new Christian was going to a Benny Hinn crusade at the Anaheim Convention Center. And I was in a position, this was before I was a pastor, and I was in a position that God put me there to teach me some things. And one of the things he taught me outside the auditorium, I couldn't get in for a while because it was too crowded I watched how the people from Benny Hinn's staff came out and screened those who were going to be able to come on stage for healing. And I watched them turn away person after person after person. People that were crippled, people that had diseases that were physically obvious. People that, I'm almost going to cry here, people that were so desperately ill, mothers of children, begging to get in. And they wouldn't let him in. Also, some guy with crutches could hobble up to the stage, throw his crutches away and pretend to be healed. What they do is evil. There's a stench in the nostrils of God. 
Melissa ought to be a stench in the nostrils of the people of God. And unfortunately, what we do is we just make him rich. I understand that what we want to do is believe in the supernatural. We want to believe it so badly. But we need to remember that, yes, God is supernatural. Yes, God does miracles. But he does them according to his will. Not according to ours. We can't order up a crusade to heal people. We can't order up a revival. All we can do is trust in the goodness of the God who died for our sins to be with us, never leaving us or forsaking us. Where we are in the circumstances and the burdens that we carry. So I hope that answers your question. There's some music. I thought I had time for one more question going in. 340-9585. The phone lines are quiet and we'd love your calls. Toll free. You can call us at 877-630-KSLR. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On For Life. We'll be back on the other side of the break. We'll see you in two minutes. the word to stand on for life we're taking your calls at 340-9585 or toll free 877-630-KSLR now here's pastor ron arbaugh welcome back to the second half of our wednesday program let's go right to the phones we'll get greg on line one from bolverde greg thanks for calling you're on the air hey pastor ron uh, glad you take my call here i got just a question about to me, there's kind of a theme that kind of runs through the Bible. Tell me if I'm if I got it right or not on your take on it. But I would say that God is more concerned about our, our obedience and our happiness. <laughs> would you agree with that? Yeah, uh, yeah, Greg. You know, uh, one of the great lines in all the Scripture when when uh, Samuel is a little late coming back, a little late for for King Saul, he didn't know it was a test. And he'd been ordered by Samuel to destroy all of the Amalekites, uh, kill every living thing, all the animals, all of that belongs to God. And uh, when when Samuel showed up, um, King Saul uh, had kept some of the people alive as trophies and some of the animals, the best of the animals. And uh, um, Samuel looked at King Saul and he said, he said, why didn't you do what I told you to do? And, and Saul's answer is, I did. I did everything that the Lord required. And then Samuel says, well, what meaneth then the bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears? In other words, those sheep should be dead if you if you were obedient. And then he made some story of, well, you know, we, we want to bring the best of the sheep for sacrifices to God. And, and Samuel's response to him was, sacrifice isn't as important as obedience. Obedience is better than sacrifice. And so you're exactly right. That is the theme. And that theme, Greg, goes from cover to cover. Does that help? Do you have time for one more oh, question? I, I do. Um, also, let's say for a Christian couple, um, or a Christian that's been married several multiple times, which one was, and if there's no, um, I'll say, you know, infidelity, um, you know, they divorce, let's say, because of, you know, irreconcilable differences. I mean, it's going to get along, whatever the case is. Which, which of those marriages was the marriage of covenant? Well, I, I think, Greg, th- th- that's a difficult question. It's like the question that the Sadducees who didn't believe in the resurrection asked Jesus. You know, a, a, a man was married, his, he died, and, and his seven brothers married his wife, because that's what law says, whose wife will she be in the resurrection? I think, I think the first marriage is the covenant marriage. However, when we violate the covenant and the marriage is broken, that marriage is gone. So it's not like, well, because that's a covenant marriage, he's stuck or she's stuck. That's not it at all. When we divorce for irreconcilable differences, what we've done is we've sinned against God. We've lied to him. We've broken our promise. 
And um, um, that is the opposite of the first question you asked, obedience. What we need to do is, is be willing to say to God, okay, God, I made this choice to marry this woman or to marry this man, and we're in it for better or for worse until death do us part. And if we're unwilling to keep that promise, as believers, if we keep doing this, all we are really is we're serial adulterers. That's what Jesus' point was when the Pharisees came to him and asked him the question about whether or not it's permissible to divorce and remarry. Um, When our hearts are hard and we are disobedient, uh, we've broken our covenant with God. That renders all the covenants that we made useless. It renders them void because we can't even keep the, the covenant that, uh, that, that demonstrates our love for God, and that's obedience. You know, when you, when you tied the first question, you said that God's more concerned with our obedience and our happiness. God could care nothing for our happiness. God wants us to be filled with joy, and it's impossible to be filled with joy, Greg, un- unless we're being obedient, unless we're in that place where the power of His Spirit is alive and working in us. So when we have Christians, and sadly, Greg, this is the the case uh, throughout the Christian world, because the world has convinced us that we need to be happy. Uh, We live in a country where we're guaranteed the pursuit of happiness. God could care less about that. God wants us to be obedient. Then he will take our circumstances and make them rich and filled with joy. And we will be happy as a result. But when we rely on things like irreconcilable differences and we justify it by saying, well, God wants me to be happy. Uh, It demonstrates that we really have uh, an immature understanding of who God is. The Father didn't want Jesus to be happy. The Father wanted Jesus to go to his death on the cross. Jesus didn't want the Apostle Paul to be happy. He reminded him, my grace is sufficient for you. Do what you're told to do. And in all the cases, of course, where that's what happens, then we're going to be happy, joyful Christians. But if we're looking for happiness from a spouse, somebody to meet our needs, we've violated the covenant so long ago that that worrying about which one is the covenant marriage is the least of our problems. What we need to do is repent of our sin, not not the sin of our spouse, but repent of our sin. We can't fix our spouse. We can't fix the one that's divorced us. And even the fact that people can think about Christians with questions like this, when Christians divorce and remarry and they divorce and they remarry and they divorce and they remarry, how can that possibly Bring God glory. How can that possibly be pleasing to the Lord? And if we are not in a place where we are pleasing to the Lord, we're never going to be happy. Greg, it doesn't matter how many different people we marry. Does that answer your question? Uh, it, it does. And what I see, I guess, uh, along with that, too, is when when a couple who are you know, um, married, they were Christians when they marry, and when they stick it through the hard times, there's a blessing there. If they stick with it. It's the only place of blessing. And every blessing of God takes us through hard times. Trials and tests. Difficulties. Um, That's why Jesus said, I will never leave you and forsake you. He's the one who walks us through those difficult times. And there's always a blessing. And a marriage that's been tested by trials. A marriage that's been tested by personality conflicts. Uh, a marriage has been tested even by infidelity. And when those marriages survive, Greg, they are trophies for Jesus. They are trophies for the Lord. And too often we care more about how we feel in the temporal than what's of value in the eternal. So you're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. When we stick through it together, not only is the Lord pleased, but he will use us as a testimony uh, to to convince others to to hang in there as well. I think that's why our witness is so important because people who are really struggling, especially in a marriage, they need to see that there's light at the end of the tunnel. And it's people like you, Greg, and I hope me. I've been with Paula. We've been together now for 49 years. Um, you know, believe it or not, Paula's not always been the loving, perfect wife that she is now. I was the perfect husband, but of course she wasn't. 
But I hung in there, and look what I got. Now, I'm just kidding. Everybody knows that. But the idea here is there's always blessing at the end of obedience. Thanks, Greg. I appreciate the call very, very much. My producer's pointing a finger at me like I'm in trouble for something. 340-9585 for your live calls and questions. Here is a question from Adam. Pastor Ron, what do you think about pastors without seminary degrees? How can someone know that their pastor has been trained effectively if they didn't get a seminary degree? Uh, Adam, I know a lot of great pastors who never went to seminary. Now, I went to Bible college. It's different. Uh, it wasn't as long as seminary. Uh, but the truth of the matter is, is that I know a lot of pastors with seminary degrees who are really, really not good pastors. So the degree has nothing to do with it. I can take it all the way back to the book of Acts when the Jewish leaders were getting jealous and angry because all of the crowds were following Peter and James and John and all of the others uh, listening to every word that they said, and people were getting saved, and and they mocked them. They said, "Well, why are why is everybody listening to these men? They're ordinary, they're uneducated. Why would anybody listen to them? They're not like us. You know, we have studied under the great rabbis." And then it says, "But they took notice that these men had been with Jesus, and uh, a degree." whether it's a Bible college or a seminary, has nothing to do with the man's giftedness to pastor. I know pastors, friends of mine, with huge, huge churches who are wonderful pastors. I also know pastors of huge churches who are terrible pastors. But the degree or a doctorate has nothing whatsoever to do with it. Now, I know many of, most of our mainline denominations uh, require a a seminary degree. Um, I think that is to miss the point. The degree one needs is to be called by God. If they're called by God, if they love the Word, if they study the Word, and then as a result of that, they love God's people, then they can't be anything but a pastor. Now, I do think sometimes, and maybe, Adam, this is what you're referring to, I do think sometimes pastors take on more than they're gifted to do. I think sometimes we try to counsel people, we try to to um, um, help people through really difficult problems that we have no expertise in. I'm not a psychologist, Um I have no intention of being a psychologist. I know what the Bible says. I know what I can depend on. But there are times when people really need medical help, medicine of the mind, Uh, people that suffer from bipolar disorder, people that suffer from other forms of of mental illness, whether it's severe schizophrenia or or other forms of mental illness. Um, I don't know what makes a pastor think that he's capable of dealing with those things. We're not qualified. What we can do is point people to Jesus, but there are times when people need to go to a doctor and they need to be medicated. Um, I I think um, pastors who counsel, and I counsel a lot, uh, have to be gifted to do it. So it's actually the Holy Spirit doing the counseling. I, I think just because somebody's a pastor doesn't necessarily mean that they're also gifted to counsel. And um, I think knowing our limitations, Adam, is really, really uh, the key to making sure that we are ministering effectively to people in the body. But as it relates to teaching the Word, uh, it's obvious. When you see somebody with the gift to teach, it is obvious that they've been called by God. You know, I've been doing this, Adam, for 24 and a half years. And um, there's no reason that I'm gifted to teach. God just chose me to do it. And I knew from the beginning that that was my calling because I loved God's Word. I devoured it. 
and I, I wanted nothing more than to communicate it to people. The, the message that I'm going to be able to do tonight, it's such an honor and a privilege to teach this chapter. And the reason um, um, that, that I get to do it, I mean, why not somebody else? Well, I'm the one God called here for this church. And any pastor that gets in the pulpit or any pastor who tries to counsel without being gifted by God to do those things, well, they're in a very, very dangerous place. And again, I think the gifting of the Holy Spirit is obvious. When you see it, you know it. So, Adam, I hope that's what you meant. Thank you for sending the question in. Here is a question from Christopher. He says, In the Great Tribulation... Can someone take the mark of the beast and then repent later? The answer, Christopher, is no. When people in the Great Tribulation take the mark of the beast, they will know, they will have been told exactly what they're doing. And once you take the mark of the beast, there's no going back. Now, we know that in the Great Tribulation, um, people who uh, won't take the mark of the beast. They're not going to be able to buy. They're not going to be able to sell. In other words, they're not going to be able to participate in the economy. You won't be able to go to uh, an, an HEB and buy something uh, because you don't have the mark of the beast. That will be your identification. That will be the way that money is, is, uh, is tracked. Uh, and so there's going to be a lot of people who are going to go hungry. There's going to be starvation. People are going to die for taking a stand for Jesus Christ during the Great Tribulation. And to a lot of people, that doesn't seem fair. Well, God understands. I'll just take the mark of the beast so I can feed my family or so I, I, can, I can keep a job. But he knows I didn't mean it. No, when everybody takes the, anybody takes the mark of the beast, they're going to know exactly what they're doing. They're going to be rejecting Jesus Christ, the Son of God, God the Son, and they're going to be embracing the Antichrist and and, and commit complete devotion to him. So there is no repentance after the fact. You know, Christopher, I had somebody once tell me that, that well, you know, uh, I, I'm just not sure about Jesus yet, and I've got a lot of things I want to do, a lot of fun that I'm having. And so here's what I'll do. You know, if, if it turns out that the rapture happens and you Christians are right, well, then in the Great Tribulation, I'll give my heart to Jesus. And my response to him when he said that was this. I said, if you think that you'll give your heart to Jesus when it's going to cost your life to do so in the Great Tribulation, but you won't give your heart to Jesus now when it's easy to do and cost you nothing, then you're kidding yourself. But you see, such is the power of the enemy. Such is the result of someone who lives for the things of this world, lives for the carnal pleasures of this world. We can kid ourselves. We can hope there's more time. We can hope there's second chances. Maybe, Christopher, this is one of the reasons that universalism is making such a a big comeback. We just want to have fun. We want to do what we want, and we don't want to suffer the consequences. The Great Tribulation, you take the mark of the beast. It is an eternal decision that has been made once and forever. Amy asked this question. She says, what did Jesus mean when he said that we should forsake family for him? Um, Amy, you may remember in the Gospels when uh, Jesus was uh, attracting a lot of attention and he went and was speaking to multitudes and his family was getting nervous. James and his mother Mary and the other brothers and sisters. You know, Jesus, Joseph, obviously dead by now. Um, it's the older brothers, the oldest brother's responsibility to take the role of the father. And Jesus wasn't doing that because he was about his father's business, his real father in heaven. And so James and Mary sort of got fed up with him. They went to get him to take control of him because he thought he was out of his mind. And when They got to the crowd. They couldn't get close to where Jesus was, so they sent word. This is his mother. We're his brother and his sisters. Tell him to come out and talk to us. And when Jesus got that message, he said, Who are my mother and my brother and my sisters? 
And then he said this, only those who do the will of my father. And he would gesture out toward the people in the crowd who were hanging on every word. This is my family now. So Amy, what he meant when he said that we should be wanting to forsake family from speaks about priorities. I know, and Amy, you probably do too, people that won't stand for Jesus because they don't want to upset their parents. We live in a largely Catholic community. And uh, I've, I've had Catholics convert to Christianity and yet wouldn't, especially daughters, wouldn't tell their mothers because, well, how could I disappoint my mother? It'll break her heart. You've got to choose. Do you love Jesus more? Do you love your mom more? And that's what he meant. He said, this is a matter of priority. Imagine, Amy, what it would be like to explain to Jesus why we chose a human being over him. Imagine the look on his face when we decided that we're not going to tell our family or we're going we're to go to this party, we're going to do this thing because there's pressure from our family to do it even though we know it's wrong. How do we explain to him that we did it because we love them more than we love you, Jesus? Now, most of us wouldn't dare say that to the Lord. We, we're not built to be that honest. But isn't it true? Jesus said, if you love me, you will obey me. Conversely, if you don't obey him, you don't love him. If your mom or your dad's telling you to do something, and it violates what Jesus told you to do, you got to say no to them so you can say yes to him. And that's what Jesus meant. He has to be first and foremost in our lives. You know, Amy, I say this all the time to our church. Uh, I love Jesus more than I, I can communicate, more than anybody I, I, I can't even explain. Now, as much as I love Paula, and I do, I, I love her more than I thought it was ever possible to love another human. I love Jesus infinitely more than I love Paula. And to be able to say that is a really good thing for Paula. Because she knows that if she would ever ask me to do something because I love her that violated the word of God, I would say, no, I can't do it because I love Jesus too much. And if she said, you love Jesus more than you love me, my answer would be yes. And Paul, of course, knows that. And the same is true in reverse. She loves Jesus more than she loves me. That's what is meant by forsaking family for him. I am constantly confronted, Amy, with people who won't leave a sinful relationship because I love him too much or I love her too much. And they claim to be Christians. How could that possibly be true? If they really love Jesus, how could they choose a human being? So that's what Jesus meant, Amy, and we have a decision to make. How are we going to demonstrate who we really love? Do we love him or do we love us, our flesh? Do we love another human? Last question of the day. This will take the time. This is an anonymous question. It says, I am a high school student. How do I speak to my peers about homosexuality since it is so accepted by our generation? If I tell the truth, I will be a complete outcast. Anonymous, you just heard the answer. I hope you did. Uh, to Amy's question about forsaking family in favor of Jesus. Uh, do you think Jeremiah was popular? He was an outcast, a complete outcast, a nut. In fact, the, the, the prophets, the Old Testament prophets, they were, we would call them weirdos. I mean, they had really, really difficult but strange ministries. God would ask him to do crazy things. Ezekiel, the things that he did were unbelievable. He was an outcast. Daniel was an outcast. You got to decide that's okay with you. Because homosexuality is so accepted by your generation, you need to get on that platform that God is giving to you and tell them the truth in love. That doesn't mean that we have to speak badly about homosexuality doesn't mean we have to call people names. We should never be rude. We should never raise our voice. But we got to take a stand for Jesus. 
And if the whole world hates you because of that stand, then that's got to be okay with us. Not that we like it. It's not what any of us wants. But imagine how proud Jesus would be standing there with you because you stood for him. And as a high school student, I understand the pressure you're under. I understand the lies that you're being taught. At the same time, you've got to care enough about those people, each and every one of them, to want them in heaven. And the only way they're going to get to heaven is repent of their sins. Not just homosexuality, but all their sins. So that they can say yes to Jesus and live. And their eternal destination has got to mean more to you than you being an outcast. Being called by your peers' names. They called Jesus a drunk. They called him the son of an immoral mother. It was okay with him because he loved you that much. So Anonymous, I think, in these last days, God is asking people, wherever we are, to take stand for him. Might be really difficult for you in a high school setting. But oh, what a blessing it will be when you experience the smile of Jesus in your life. Hey, thank you for the questions, the calls today. You've been listening to The Word to Stand On for Life. I'm Pastor Ron Arbaugh from Calvary Chapel in San Antonio, Texas. Lord willing, I'll be back tomorrow at 4 o'clock on AM 630 The Word. See you then. Thanks for spending this time with Calvary Chapel's The Word to Stand On for Life with Pastor Ron Arbaugh. The Word to Stand On for Life is on every weekday afternoon at 4, and Pastor Ron invites you to find out more about Calvary Chapel at calvarysa.com. The Word to Stand On for Life was sponsored by Calvary Chapel of San Antonio. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.